This is the Pastor Podcast with Randy and Andy. Andy Payton is the lead pastor at Methodist Temple United Methodist Church in Evansville, Indiana. Randy Moore is associate pastor at Methodist Temple. Their goal is to see Christ in everything and everyone. Hello, everyone. I'm Randy Moore. And I'm Andy Payton. It's good to have you with us again this week. Uh, Just a quick review of what we're really all about here. Uh, What we want to do is to delve deeper into the text that we study on a Sunday morning, the text that's opened up from the the pulpit. And what's been going on for the last many weeks is, uh, Pastor Andy, you've been doing a 25-part sermon series on the 25 Articles of Religion. And so it has been, it's been fascinating. Uh, At first glance, you think, ooh, that sounds like that could be rather dry or maybe over my head. But you've done a lot of interesting things with it. And I think that the congregation and those who've listened have gotten a lot out of it too. So I'll let you again, as briefly as you can, just explain what those 25 articles are. So the uh, 25 articles of religion that we've been going through are John Wesley's Uh, doctrinal standards he gave to the people called Methodists in the late 1700s, early 1800s, as America was being born. Uh, The Methodist tradition in America was also being born, and so he created these standards, and he shared them with the Methodist. And so what I'm trying to do is take a look at them in such a way where I ask the question, what, what can these ancient words teach us about our relationship with God today? And uh, you said it, on the surface looks like it's dry, and on the surface it looks like it's full of information. Let me just tell you, sometimes it has been dry for me, and it's been information overload for me, but what I can say is that to no fail, no fail every time, every time I've dialed into one of these articles, I've learned something new about my relationship with God. There's a timelessness to them. You're rewarded by the by the work that you're putting in and by your sensitivity to the movement uh, of the Spirit. So on this Sunday, you'll be dealing with Article 8 of free will, and later on this today, uh, we'll do a preview of that. Uh, but you didn't preach last week. I preached, and so you get a once-a-month interruption in this. And so I preached on a, a very familiar text, I think, um, uh, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And so I'm going to sort of go through my thinking on that, how that sermon came together, try to expand on it, and then get your comments on on that text and on the sermon. Uh, But before we do that, it's been our practice since we started this, uh, to ask each other, how is it with your soul? We didn't just make that up. We think that comes in our tradition as, as Methodists. And so how is it with your soul? My soul, uh, the place I'm finding my way closer to God um, this week has been, I've started creating a list of prayer requests that I keep on my phone. And so part of my devotion now is I go through those list of names and prayer requests. I start with myself and my family and then move on into the church. And I felt a deep sense of connection for those folks that I prayed for. And then uh, I, I've ended then that time of devotional, devotional reading and prayer with uh, reading the daily office. And so that's a, there's a lesson assigned from the Old Testament, a lesson assigned from um, one of the epistles. Actually, we're in Acts right now in the daily office, and then there's one from the gospel. And uh, every day I just read those texts and then write down a verse that maybe speaks to me. And I have I've felt myself being more connected. I felt more dialed in when it comes to my own relationship with God. And so I guess, how is it with my soul? Well, I'm feeling pretty good today. 
And as you are wont to do, you did a little deeper dive on this question, how is it with your soul? And what you came up with is, is interesting because it is a related question, but in many ways a different question. Yeah. Um, so the question that we asked today in contemporary Methodism is how is it with your soul, of course. But if you go back to John Wesley, the question was different. He asked the question, it was, um, how to go, how does your soul prosper? Which is much, much different. Um, the idea of that question that Wesley asked is like, we are called as human beings to use the energy that God has given us to grow in our relationship with God. Um, make our soul, make our, make our soul prosper is the idea. And that's a little different than the way we phrase it today. Yeah, the condition of our soul isn't a result of what goes on around us. It, it is a result of how we take what we've been given by God and use it to for the health of our soul. Is that close? Yeah. Um, well, the technical phrase would be a responsible grace. We are responsible as human beings that have been given freedom from God to use that freedom in such a way to grow closer to God. Uh, the purpose of creation is to grow in our love of God and our love of humanity. And so if we're going that direction, our soul is prospering. If we're not going in that direction, we're not prospering. And so I think that gets at the heart and the core of what Wesley was trying to get at when he asked, the, asked this question long ago. Yeah, uh, because we are uh, in a sense professionals at this, that's really not the word to use, but it is our job. Um, then we sort of, uh, it's part of the job description that we build in some of these disciplines and we, we build in these devotionals and we build in a certain amount of uh, reading of the scripture. Um, I'm not saying that that's what gets it there for us, but uh, we do have that advantage mm-hmm. and, um, and others could benefit by taking that same kind of an approach. But until they are required to do it, as we're required to do it, it takes a little bit more motivation, and we have a role in that as well. Absolutely, we have a role in it. And I'll add, when it comes to ministry, a lot of times if you're not careful, you get really busy doing a lot of things. And if you're not careful, you'll lose your soul (laughs) in the sense that you become closed off. And you start walking through the motions and your heart's no longer really open uh, to the presence of God and the, and the people you're serving. The people you're serving. And uh, if you're not careful, ministry can become just another job and not a vocation, a way to, to live into um, your faithfulness and your relationship with living God. Mm-hmm. That question that we have asked each other, how is it with your soul? And now this other question that goes all the way back to, to Wesley, how does your uh, soul prosper? I think in some of the follow-up questions, because we've used the example of the examination that happens more than annually for United Methodist pastors, uh, I think those follow-up questions to that original question gets to the definition of the second question that you brought up. Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't have the, the list of questions memorized. I uh, I came across the list one at one point. Wesley had like twenty two questions that he would ask people, and a lot of them were hardcore. Like, uh, do you have sin in your life? Have you confessed your sin in your life? Stuff like that. Um, is Christ real to you? I think was in there. Yeah. Stuff like that, though. And so yeah, it was all about your 
your spiritual health. That's the point of the soul question. So how is it with your soul? How does your soul prosper, Randy? I guess we should probably ask that before we move on. Absolutely. And uh, given that we have a new question to consider, wow, it does. It does uh, help us see that in a different light. Uh, because what I want to say, how are you feeling kind of a thing, which minimizes what's really at, right. the, at the heart of it. Um, you know, we have, again, I mean, this is what we do as a, as a church is that uh, people are born and they live and they die. And then sometimes uh, many funerals happen at the same time. And, and uh, that's going on right now in, in the life of our church. And so um, being uh, there for families in times like these, uh, I think I've mentioned this before, but I think it's worth repeating. It can be seen as something that is very sad um, or you know, kind of depressing. And, and it is it, it is sad, but it is also extremely rewarding and I believe good for the soul uh, to be able to stand in that place for people during some of the worst times in their in their lives. And so I suppose that if you didn't see that, aspect of it that that in itself could lead to uh, your soul being diminished but properly understood and properly exercised i think it can actually help with uh, the growth of uh, one's soul not only for for mine but for those that i minister to and that and that you minister to so that's a question though uh andy that i'll be giving a lot of thought between now and next week uh and be sensitive to what's going on and and what i'm doing and to be fair i kind of just sprung it on you right before our podcast started but it is worth giving some thought to, for sure. It absolutely is. Okay, let's talk about last week's sermon. As we said, you had the week off. I typically preach once a month. And so I'll just give you a little bit of a peek behind the curtain, uh, talking about the listeners, and, and part of my process. I was actually going to preach on the epistle lesson, which was in the uh, common lectionary for last Sunday, which was a, a lesson from Romans. But I happen to be, right now, just just turned in my final paper. Happened to be in a class um, uh, on Paul and on the writings of Paul and on Acts and on, and on Revelation. And I'm, I'm working on these papers and I'm, one of the assignments was to do a paper on uh, this lesson from the eighth chapter of Acts on Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. So, you know, I'm up to my neck in that and I, if I, it dawns on me, you know what, I should probably just develop a sermon out of this because by the time I turn in this paper, I'm going to be out of time to prepare a sermon. So that's how that sermon came together. Um, but that lesson actually comes up in next year's lectionary on the fifth Sunday hmm. in Easter. And I wondered, too, uh, why is that a, you know, why is that an Easter lesson? Uh, so that's another question that we could get into. So that's how I decided to, to preach on Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Again, it comes from the eighth chapter of Acts. And um, I said this last week as I was getting rolling in my, in my sermon. I said, thinking about this Ethiopian eunuch who was really just an outsider, and we'll, and we'll talk about that, someone who was not welcome, uh, didn't, have, uh, didn't have the pass to get deep into the temple in Jerusalem, and so was an outsider, uh, was an other, right, uh, not like uh, some others. And you had talked about that in your sermon about original sin and original goodness, and it, and it really stuck with me when you defined 
uh, sin, and you defined it two ways. One, sins, plural, a conscious act of uh, willfully failing to love, and then sin, uh, singular, which is really what is getting more at the heart of original sin, which uh, you called a state of being, and that can manifest itself through a wariness of the other. And so then I try to develop this idea of the Ethiopian eunuch being the other. I saw that connection and made that uh, to the previous sermon. Absolutely. And um, well, I, this is one of those moments where I preached myself into something as you talk about original sin and the wariness of the other, the mistrust of the other, of the other. And it truly is a universal reality. We all have that within our lives. And the, the notion that we all have it in our lives is important for us to admit and realize because if we don't admit it, if we don't realize it, then we're doomed just to enact it and live it out. And we certainly can see that happening in, in our world today. As we look at the book of Acts, though, what we find is God's Spirit is reversing that and overcoming the otherness. We find it on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit transcends all the different cultures and languages and then in Acts 8, we also see the Spirit nudging Philip to reach out to someone that would have looked different and was from a different place in the world than he was. And so we find God's Spirit nudging people to, to move in that direction that's really, in some ways, against our nature at first. But as we overcome the otherness, like in the story of Philip, I think that that suspicion does go away. And we grow to actually love the person that we once were suspicious of, which to me, well, I use another Wesleyan term here, that's sanctifying grace. <laughs> you know, we're not forcing ourselves to love now. We're actually loving because our heart has become different and we've related our way into holiness at that point. Mm -hmm. In a conversation I had with someone about the sermon um, and talking about um, not being wary of the other and welcoming in the other. This person said, but we have to be on guard. And we do absolutely have to be on guard. We, we don't want to be taken advantage of by, some, by someone who might be interested in doing us harm. But it comes back to the fact that what we are ideally looking for, which is summarized in what we say every Sunday, I see Christ in you, we're not saying that you have reached the perfection of Christ. We're saying that we choose to see in you that you are Christ, even though there may be elements of who you are because you're a sinful person that might be harmful to me. So, yes, we do need to be on guard, but at the same time, we're still looking. We're still looking for something deeper. Yes, but you use the phrase perfection of Christ in that moment. Yeah. What is the perfection of Christ? It's the cross. Yeah. What happens on the cross? He dies. He willingly gives himself over and, and dies a, a violent death for the sake of loving people who are other than, you know. Yeah. That's what perfection looks like when it comes to God's love. And uh, I'm not saying I'm there by any means. But they, they have said the tradition that is, they being the tradition, the Christian tradition, has long said that the measure of one's holiness is, a willing, is our willingness our ability to love one's enemies, as we see on the cross. And that really becomes the definition of for growing in our spiritual formation and the spiritual journey. Back to the soul question, how do you know if you're growing? Well, are you loving your enemy? 
There you go. That's a good test. Let's dive a little deeper into the story. There are two characters uh, in this story, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, this is not Philip the, uh, the apostle. This is Philip the evangelist. You might remember, if you remember your acts, that the 12 apostles, they got very busy uh, w- with their duties, and they said, hey, let's appoint, um, let's appoint some others. And so they appointed these deacons. There were these seven, and Philip is one of the seven. And one of the things that is fascinating about the book of Acts, which is the second volume of a two-volume work by the writer of Luke, uh, the same uh, person who wrote Luke wrote Acts, and as we see Jesus operating, uh, the earthly Jesus operating in the gospel of Luke, we see this, the spirit of Jesus acting through the apostles and the early church in Acts. It's uncanny, the, uh, the similarities there. And so this Philip, uh, at the urging of the Spirit, is he's acting as Jesus, and you have the plot laid out in uh, actually before chapter eight. It's all the way back in chapter one. The whole plot of Acts is laid out uh, when uh, the writer says, "You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth." This is the plot. This is the plan. This is God's plan, and it will. Un- unfold throughout the book of Acts, and and we're on one stop along the way in this story. Mm-hmm. That's a wonderful passage of Scripture, and if you stop and think about it, as you're, as you're noting, Randy, um, it starts in Jerusalem, which is kind of like home base, uh, Judea, which is maybe our equivalent of Vanderburg County, again, home base, but then it says Samaria, and any person in the first century context, any Jewish person in the first century context, would they would well know Samaria is the place you don't want to go. And it's there that the power of the Spirit is driving people, inviting people, uh, challenging people to go. And that's what the gospel looks like. Mm-hmm. And if you back up from our, te- our text in, in the eighth chapter of Acts, Philip did go there to Samaria. And so uh, the gospel is on the move. Uh, Verse 26 then in 8 says, Then an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Get up and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a wilderness road. So he got up and went. Certain phrases catch you like that. I love that phrase. He got up and went. It reminds me of Abraham. You know, God said go, and, and, and Abraham got up and went. And then a point I made in the sermon, which I think is an important one to make all of the time, is that we don't necessarily have to see this as some sort of theophany, this angel of the Lord. Because if we're waiting for that now, we're going to wait for a long time uh, to see, you know, God in the, in the flesh or even to or even to hear audibly God's voice in our ears. And so it might not have been that for Philip. Philip uh, clearly operating as Jesus operates is sensitive to the leading of God. And so it's a part, it's a part of who he is. I call it, for us, I call it a nudge. And who of us has not felt an nudge? Is there discernment on where that nudge comes from? Yes, absolutely. But if we are tuned in, then we can discern that it's the Spirit and get up and go. Yeah. And I think sometimes as you're, you know, you were talking, I was sitting there thinking like, how does God speak to me? I think a lot of times we're waiting for some sort of audible voice, like you, like you were mentioning, like an angel appearing in the sky or some sort of like miraculous event like that. But I don't think that's how God typically speaks to any of us. If, if we're going to wait for an audible voice or angel in the sky, we're going to be waiting a long time. I think what God does, though, is God speaks to us from the depth of our being. In, in fact, that's, 
that's what God has given us. God is the ground of our being, and so therefore connects with us through our being. And it's as you said, Randy, it's like a nudge. It's like a an invitation. It's like a, a I don't like the word feeling here, but it's this inner longing to reach out to a person, to love them. Um, and we've all had those moments. And if we yield to them, they grow. And if we don't yield to them, they do go away. They do. We can let them go, and often we and often we do. All right, the story continues saying, Now there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of the Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning home. Seated in his chariot, he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And so here we have the second character, Philip the first character, this Ethiopian eunuch, uh, the second character. You know, I do have one regret about this story. This Ethiopian eunuch is so important in understanding God's all-encompassing love, and he doesn't have a name. I I wish he had a name. He doesn't. We know, uh, uh, talking about uh, eunuchs in in general, that they would be castrated males, and so they would be because you can imagine what would happen inside someone's body in, the, in that condition. And so this person finds himself somewhere between male and female, you know, not normal. Um, from Ethiopia, not, uh, not the modern state of Ethiopia, but the area of Africa south of Egypt. In other words, the end of the earth. Mm-hmm. This, is where, this is where the gospel is going to, the end of the earth. The word Ethiopian means people of burnt skin, and so... This person was African, this person was black, had a different skin color than, than the norm uh, there. And um, a lot of times a eunuch would be put in charge of royal harems because they wouldn't be a threat to the, to the harem or to the, or to the royal. Um, and so that's a little bit of the background about who uh, this Ethiopian was and how much of an outsider, how much of an other uh, he was. The other thing is that he came a long way to worship. Uh, a lot of people have tried to measure it. That's not the point. The point is that he came from the other end of the known world. Okay, so however long it was in miles or however long it might have taken him, uh, he came a long way to worship uh, at, uh, in Jerusalem inside the temple. But then we don't get that. We get the fact that he's going home. And so what we, what we read into it, it's not in the text, what we read into it, is that he might have been prevented from going fully inside the temple because of what Deuteronomy says and about how eunuchs are not, uh, they may not enter uh, the assembly. So was he turned away? Uh, it sure looks like it, and so he's going at home, but he's still worshiping. <laughs> he's, he's got our scroll of Isaiah, uh, and, he's, and he's reading Isaiah. So, it, you know, it, he's a fascinating character. Oh my goodness. I just take all that in for a moment. Uh, this person travels all the way, like you said, from the ends of the earth to Jerusalem to worship, very likely was denied. And he kept going anyway. And of course, I just sit here and think about the parallels with the contemporary church today. Who are we turning away? And, and all the controversies and different things we've dealt with in the last hundred or so years about who's in, who's out these kinds of questions and and I'm thinking 
It goes all the way back to the beginning, doesn't it? I mean, the fact that they have to tell this story and they wrote it down suggests that this was a challenge for them Mm -hmm. um, in the early church, and it continues to be a challenge for us in the church today. But even on a more subtle level, um, being hospitable to the stranger, especially on a Sunday morning, is massive. There's studies that suggest that a person will decide whether or not they're coming back to worship within like five minutes of getting to a church service. Now think about that. We haven't sang a song. We haven't prayed a prayer. The pastor hasn't come out and gave the welcome yet. Nothing has happened. They're gauging the vibe in the room, and we all do it. Right. We all do it. You've walked into a room, and it's cold as ice. Walked into a room, and it's warm, and it's filled with love. And, of course, we know which one Christ is calling us to. Um, yeah. I, in a very real sense... Hospitality is the Christian ethic, isn't it? Absolutely. Then the Spirit said to Philip, Go over to this chariot and join it. So Philip ran up to it and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. He asked, Do you understand what you are reading? Once again, Philip responds. In the first case, it was to, the, to an angel. In the second case, it was to the Spirit. It's the same thing. This is God. This is God forcing the action here. All right? Okay? And then this one question of Philip uh, results in three questions uh, asked by the eunuch. And so the first question the eunuch asks is, how can I understand? How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to get in and sit beside him. Um, my overall uh, message, of course, was one of inclusivity, but as a, as a preacher, you can't uh, avoid taking out some of these side roads off of here. And I think this gives us a op- wonderful opportunity to say, how often do we find it difficult to understand the Scripture? How often do our people find it difficult to understand the Scripture? And so I took a moment to say, the Scripture it's the people's scripture. It's the community scripture, and we interpret it as a community. That's why we read and worship the scripture. That's why we have Sunday school. That's why we have small groups. That's why we have various studies. Uh, Again, we are, you know, that's who we are as professionals. We're supposed to know the scriptures, but we cannot know it understand it completely and we have our own biases and our own understandings and our own religious or lack of religious upbringing and so to involve the community in the interpretation of the scripture is a necessity first the scripture is it's an these are ancient texts we believe that they're inspired but at the same time they're ancient texts and so that's what that's part of what makes them difficult to understand they're written in languages that are not our own the Old Testament, for instance, is written in in, uh, in Hebrew and in Aramaic. The New Testament is written in Greek. So first of all, it's got to be it's got to be translated. Then it has to be interpreted because it's happening in a different time, in a different place, in a different culture, and we help one another if we interpret it together. Absolutely. Um, and that question, what was the question the eunuch asked again? How how am I to know unless someone guides me? me? And he was willing to learn he was teachable Mm -hmm. maybe that's the first uh, prerequisite to hearing God speak is I'm I'm willing to learn I'm teachable 
I can't tell you how many times in my own life I assume I know what a text means. I assume I know what it says. I assume I know what the answer is. And in assuming I'm no longer teachable, I'm shut off to the new nudges that God might give me. And so the eunuch just does a fabulous job there of teaching us what it looks like to be a person who yields to the direction of God's love. The narrative continues. All right, now um, we get a bit about what he was reading from this scroll of Isaiah. Now, the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb, silent before its shearer. So he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. Question number two, then, is posed here, and the eunuch asks Philip, About whom, may I ask you, does the prophet say this is about himself or about someone else? I think it's important to insert here that um, the, the Jewish people, those of that time who did not see in Jesus what uh, the early Christians saw in Jesus, when they read this scripture, they don't uh, see Jesus. Who is this about? It's either about Israel or a remnant of Israel or uh, maybe, a, maybe a Messiah. There were various uh, ways of looking at that. And that's still okay today. You know, I, I think we all struggle with that a little bit because we have these scriptures that, that uh, belong to um, ancient Israel, that, that belongs to uh, Judaism. And, um, but when we look back at those, because those scriptures have become our scriptures, um, we do look back at them after acknowledging the, the life of Jesus, um, the teaching of Jesus, the death and resurrection and uh, ascension of Jesus. And so we do see uh, Jesus when we look back at those scriptures. And, uh, and that's, that's okay. You've talked about various lenses. That happens to be our, our Christian lens. Yeah, and well, as well said, Randy, but you're right. The, the Jewish community... The Hebrew community, uh, the community that Isaiah was originally given to, if you look at the context of the passage that's being read in Acts from Isaiah, uh, the context doesn't really fit with the idea of Jesus very well. That doesn't mean that we can't see Christ-like love in a passage. And this certainly is a passage in which we we see Christ-like love, especially as we think about um, the sacrificial language, the laying down of one's life, all that. We see that certainly in Jesus. And it's as I've said before, um, you don't read uh, the Bible to become a Christian. Rather, you become a Christian so that you can read the Bible. The, the point being, you're looking for expressions of Christ-like love, and Isaiah does give us a, a poetic and beautiful one here. Mm-hmm. Um, here's one of the really <laughs> great things I like about this uh, passage, uh, and it's these parallels that I talked about between what happens in Luke and what happens in Acts. And so... For someone who's familiar uh, with the Gospel of Luke, you know, that's what helps. Uh, the more we read about Scripture, the more we see connections to other parts of Scripture. We have these hyperlinks all, almost. And so I think this is a hyperlink to the story from Luke about the walk to Emmaus, which happened on, on Resurrection Sunday, when after the events of that day, a couple of disciples were walking home back to Emmaus. A stranger comes up walking next to them. They don't realize until they take him inside for a meal 
that this person opens the scriptures up to them, they break bread, and all of a sudden it's Jesus. The same thing happens with the Ethiopian eunuch. Yeah. Uh, yeah? Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm sitting there thinking about it. I was like, that's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> oh, if you're listening to this podcast right now, you're just witnessing Andy and Randy <laughs> geeking out on a passage of scripture. Um, there's a line in the Emmaus story that really just jumps out to me as I think about Emmaus now, though, that they say, were our hearts not burning within us? Mm-hmm. It's as if Jesus comes and confirms what they already knew in the depths of their own being and their own heart. That is so cool. I, I don't have, we don't have time to unpack all of that, <laughs> but holy cow. Um, somehow in the depths of us, we know the love we see in Jesus is what's real. Mm-hmm. And here we have communion. And we're coming up on baptism. Okay, so let's continue. As they were going along the road, they came to some water. We heard earlier this is a wilderness road. That might mean it's a desert road. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean it's hot and sandy. It it doesn't have to mean that. But that sure resonates, doesn't it, that God is still at work right here, that just as... uh, this uh, Ethiopian eunuch has had the scriptures opened up to him and then they continue down this road and they come upon this water and then the Ethiopian eunuch says, hey, here's some water. Question number three, what is to prevent me from being baptized? And of course the answer is nothing. Nothing, nothing at all. Um, the eunuch is a child of God, therefore can be baptized. Sacramentally speaking, I think what baptism does is it tells us who we are, and communion, in a very real sense, teaches us where we're going. And it's perfect, sacramentally. Mm -hmm. But to baptize the eunuch in this moment, nothing has been asked—he has not—the eunuch's not been asked to change anything, to do anything really different— He's a candidate yeah. for baptism, yeah. and um, that's the gospel. When you look at that question, you can see it. I think you can see it in two ways, and, and I absolutely love the question. What is to prevent me from being baptized? Kind of sounds like there's nothing that prevents me from being baptized. Or on the other side, it's like he's saying, I wonder what would prevent me from being baptized because Philip, had Philip not been so enlightened by the Spirit of Christ, could have come up with a pretty good list mm-hmm. of things that prevent him from being baptized. He's a foreigner. Yeah. His skin color is not like ours. He's a, he's, a, he's a Gentile. I mean, he's probably a God-fearer. Some say he's a Jew but uh, of the diaspora, but it looks like he's at most a God-fearer, so he's still other. And then... There's Deuteronomy, which, as I said uh, in the in the uh, in the sermon, there's De- Deuteronomy, which would have prevented him from fully enjoying participation in the assembly because of him being a eunuch. And I said this: it's uh, this verse in Deuteronomy is not for general audiences, and so if you want to look it up, you can look it up. Um, and, which lead which would lead one to maybe say, "Well, God said it. I believe it. That settles it." you're not going to be baptized. And I said, not so fast. Uh, not, not so fast because had the Ethiopian unit continued unfurling that scroll, he would have arrived in Isaiah 
uh, to chapter 56, verse 3 to 5, which says, Do not let the foreigner join to the Lord, say, The Lord will surely separate me and his people from his people. And do not let the eunuch say, I am just a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. This is another important, not only is it beautiful because he's taking an outsider and and bringing the outsider in here, but it's another really great example of the way we have to read Scripture and not proof text. You could have proof texted this Ethiopian eunuch right out of town by quoting Deuteronomy, but with Isaiah, he's welcome. And so it's not you know it's it's dangerous uh, to just take a text and apply it generally unless you apply the rule that you always apply does it express the love of god yeah i mean well this is one of those beautiful examples of the bible critiquing itself and uh i mean there's some in the christian world today that have a theology that it, the bible's inerrant there's no inconsistencies there's no disagreements and I want to say to people, have you read it? Have you read the Bible that you're saying this about? Because it does. It corrects. There's a course correction here. And, uh, and we're called to still do that today. Why? God is still speaking. God is still creating. And we are participants in that ongoing creativity of the Spirit of God. And so the story ends this way. He commanded the chariot to stop, and both of them, Philip and the eunuch, went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. The eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he was passing through the region, he proclaimed the good news to all the towns until he came to Caesarea." And so what we're to take away is that we have this ultimate outsider taken inside by communion and by by baptism here with an allusion to, to communion. And our assumption is that this, that this new member of the community is taking the good news back home to the ends of the earth. Amen. (laughs) It's just, it's a, it just, it's one of those stories that just preaches itself. Um, And what better candidate to go back home and preach it than someone from home, not an outsider. It's an insider going back home uh, to share the good news of God's love with other folks from his community. All right. Amen and amen. Okay. In our last uh, moments here, we do want to preview this Sunday's sermon. You'll be back in the 25 Articles of Religion with article number 8 of Free Will. I'll read the description. The condition of man after the fall of Adam is such that he cannot turn and prepare himself by his own natural strength and works to faith and calling upon God. Wherefore, we have no power to do good works, pleasant and acceptable to God, without the grace of God, by Christ preventing us, that we may have a good will and working with us when we have that good will. Well, we'll be right back at it then, won't we? Um, so I love this article because it speaks of the language in the article is preventing grace, which was the 1700s way of talking about what we call today 
prevenient grace. And essentially what prevenient grace says is that God is not an add-on. Grace has already been given. And so we're really not receiving grace as much as we're responding to the grace and the presence of God. And once you get that basic idea down, it has a very different starting point and it takes you to a very different conclusion in terms of how you live out the ethical and moral requirements that the gospel calls us to. All right. Well, Pastor Andy, you have piqued my interest. I'm sure you have piqued the interest of all of those who are listening. And if that's you, we thank you so much uh, for listening. We really appreciate it. Have a great week, and we will see you again next week. This has been the Pastor Podcast with Randy and Andy. You are welcome to join us at Methodist Temple in person or online. Methodist Temple is at 2109 Lincoln Avenue in Evansville, Indiana. Our traditional Sunday morning worship service is at 8.30 with our contemporary service at 11. Log on to our website at methodisttemple.church. We see Christ in you.